Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. This is On the Ball on the United Wecast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me on the Fox Sports app and at foxsports.com. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at Rick Buecher. From a lot of places. But there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA. And that is here. So I'm just going to say it. Damian Lillard going to Miami just makes too much damn sense. And no, I don't mean just for vacation. I mean to play for the Miami Heat. The timing could not be more perfect on a multitude of levels, especially if he presses the trailblazers to make it happen because that presumably will drive the price down a bit. In much the same way, another guy we're going to talk about, Bradley Beal, his potential in going to Miami and his no no trade clause in his deal and a 15% trade kicker, which he could presumably waive. Uh, in order to go where he wants or use that as a carrot to go where he wants. He can determine where he's going to go and have some influence on how much that team gives up to get him. Um, Because that's the one hitch. Miami isn't exactly assets rich right now, at least not rich enough to retain a title contending roster and give up what it would normally cost to get a player of Lillard's caliber and value to the Blazers franchise. And I say caliber and value because Lillard has a tremendous amount of value off the court as well um, as a as the face of the league, as a corporate sponsorship seller, as a season ticket draw, etc. But with all of Dame's years of service in Portland, a relatively neophyte GM in Joe Cronin, a uh, little uncertainty when it comes to the ownership there and who is running it and whether it's going to be sold, uh, as has been anticipated for well over a year now since uh, Jody Allen inherited it from his from her late brother Paul. Uh, there's a lot of things up in the air that open the door for Lillard to exit stage right, including a contract that is extremely expensive and at his age and where the franchise is and it's 
arc of development doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So they can't well hold him hostage is what I'm saying, but we'll get into that. First, I want to outline why, as someone who has long said that Dame doesn't have to go somewhere else and that only winning a ring would make all that he would be giving up worth the move, uh, and that winning a ring, no matter where he went, would be far from a sure thing, I could see a move to the Heat working for all concerned, including Damian, because it's the one place that he has a shot at a ring where he might not have to give up everything that he has in the great Northwest. And what is that, you might ask? For starters, a fan base that reveres him. A fan base that has appreciated his unwavering loyalty. They see him, the Blazers fans that is, as one of them. The undersized, the underestimated, an underdog. Fearless and efficient, but not overly flashy. Sure, there are some in the fan base that are grumbling that Dame hasn't gotten them to the finals, just as they grumbled that former GM Neil Olshay didn't do more than construct a roster around Dame that went to the playoffs a league leading at the time eight years in a row. That wasn't good enough for some Blazers fans. There are always going to be grumblers who refuse to recognize that the reason they are the underestimated and perennial underdogs is because their market isn't a magnet for top NBA talent. So winning championships is not necessarily part of the heritage. Most of their talent has to be homegrown or found in the rough. No one in Portland wants to think that they could be Charlotte or Orlando or Sacramento until this year. They think, apparently, because they won a title many, many years ago, and those markets have never reached the top of the mountain, that they're not like those small markets. They're more like Houston or, at worst, Milwaukee. But they're not, at least not right now. Milwaukee has ownership that is willing to spend. Portland's ownership is in flux and has been since Paul Allen died and his sister inherited the team. They don't have Houston's weather or big city attractions for NBA players. It's just reality. I like Portland, personally, and I actually said so the other day while watching Game 4 with two pro athletes, both of whom have spent time in Portland and one of them who actually played there for the Blazers. And when I said that I like Portland, (laughs) both of them looked at me sideways and one of them asked, what do you like about it? And I had to say, I I love that it's a walking city. I love the restaurants. I love the bookstores. I I love coffee, so I love the coffee shops. I I like the, the feel of it. I grew up in Cincinnati, a river town, so there's probably some of that too. Uh, Seeing the river there, that feels like home, to a certain extent for me. Uh, But these pro players couldn't, I naturally, a lot of that would not be very appealing to them, understandably. But Dame has never complained about Portland. He seems to like it too. He's the rare player who qualifies as a star, bordering on superstar, 
who has had options to go elsewhere and has stayed. One of the reasons is because the franchise has never wavered on meeting all of his contract demands and giving him a seat at the decision-making table, and he understands how rare that is, and he appreciates it. This is a guy who has shown loyalty from the time he was playing on a middle school AAU team. Being in Portland has also allowed him to have a mega shoe deal and endorsements that players on a similar scale in bigger markets have not enjoyed. Devin Booker doesn't have Dame's shoe deal or endorsements. Paul George doesn't have his shoe deal or endorsements. De'Aaron Fox doesn't. Zach Levine, Trey Young, Carl Anthony Towns, Russ Westbrook. Nope, none of them. And the reality is, Dame hasn't done much more than most of them as far as postseason success. He's actually done less than Booker and Westbrook, who have been to the finals. But he's viewed as being much bigger than most of those players I named, if not all of them. Because he's a big fish in a small pond. The undisputed numero uno. So anything he and the Blazers have done, he has received the lion's share of the credit. He's far more popular than James Harden, primarily because he's been willing to stay in one place, Portland. And so doesn't matter that Harden has a league MVP and a scoring title, two things that Dame, quite honestly, has never come close to getting. He is more beloved and seen in a different light nationally, certainly nationally, I don't know about globally, but nationally as a result of the way that the people in Portland feel about him. If he went to the Lakers, for example, he would be in the shadow of LeBron James. He wins a ring there, he's not getting major credit. If he went to Philadelphia, he'd be in the shadow of Joel Embiid. Might get a little more credit, still, it's Joel Embiid's town. Milwaukee has Giannis Antetokounmpo. Boston has Jason Tatum. I can't think of a title contending team where he could step in and be the star, except in Miami. Jimmy Butler is the Heat's biggest star now. But if his two finals appearances have proved anything, it's that he's one notch below being the kind of star that can lead a team to a title. And he has made it clear that he does not see himself in that light. Those other teams I mentioned could certainly use Dame, but the feeling in Miami seems to be that they need him. Now, whether he can actually be a player who leads a team to a title certainly remains to be proved, but in Miami, he'd have the chance to prove it, and I don't see it damaging any of the other parts of his profile that he created being in Portland. I don't see him being diminished as a result of going to Miami. If anything, his profile would be heightened. He'd instantly be their leading scorer, their go-to guy in the clutch. There would be no question about that. He'd be viewed the way Kevin Durant was in going to Brooklyn and Phoenix. The guy who can put that franchise over the top. The guy they need to put them over the top. He is also the rare star who has not competed for a ring who would fit the Heat's culture. Not everybody wants to put in the work, the grind, that the Heat require. 
to share the load and the limelight the way the heat require. Dame's done that in Portland. He was the star, but he made room for others to shine. C.J. McCollum, LaMarcus Aldridge, even Yusuf Nurkic. It's never felt like a wrestling match the way, say, Kyrie and LeBron felt in Cleveland, or Embiid and Harden in Philadelphia, or Kyrie and Tatum, or Harden and Westbrook, or Chris Paul and Blake Griffin. The Heat value loyalty and self-sacrifice above all else, and Lillard has demonstrated that he values those qualities as well. The timing is right because Portland feels primed for a reset with the resources to do one, beginning with that number three pick. Anthony Simons is a budding star. So is Shaden Sharp. And the reality is that Lillard is due to make nearly $50 million each of the next two years and nearly $60 million, million each of the two years after that. He will be 33 years old next season. You can do the math. It's awfully hard to envision the Blazers putting a cast around him good enough to wade through the Western Conference in the next couple of years. Not with teams like the Kings and the Grizzlies with younger stars and deeper rosters and more collective postseason experience. And if a team is going to reload, it's more likely to be Golden State, the Warrior, uh, the Lakers, or the Clippers. Again, that's where the market intrudes. The East, however, is wide open. Milwaukee presuming they don't get Bradley Beal, has an aging roster around Giannis and is due for a bit of a reset themselves. I don't know if they're going to be able to re-sign Brooke Lopez. And from what I've heard, they're looking to get off of Chris Middleton's contract. He has an option, a player option for about $40 million, And they're worried that if he opts out of that, they're now pressed to sign him to a longer-term deal for comparable money. They would much rather do a sign-and-trade. Boston's star core of Tatum and Jalen Brown appears flawed. The 76ers appear the same way with Embiid and Harden, even if they're able to retain the latter. It's hard to see the Knicks getting appreciably better. The Hawks have all kinds of issues. The Heat, with Lillard, would appear to be the team to beat in the Eastern Conference right off the bat, assuming they wouldn't have to give up Jimmy or Bam Adebayo to get him. Now, as I mentioned, there is one other option for the Heat, it appears, and that's Bradley Beal. Word is out now that he and the Wizards have agreed to find him a new home. And I've been told the Heat, Celtics, and Bucks are at the top of his shortlist. Wherever he lands... If it's one of those three teams, it presents a wrinkle in the idea that the Nuggets should go into next season as the prohibitive favorites. They probably still will. But, I, and I don't know how many other people out there, but I was looking at them, the composition of their team. All five starters are signed to contracts. Uh, only Jeff Green is over 30 among the players in their rotation. The rest of the guys, the rest of the guys are 29 or younger. Uh, and their chemistry is exactly, it reminds me of Golden State. Nikola Jokic, 
not overly concerned about being a star or getting personal accolades. Jamal Murray the same way. Those guys appreciate each other and their games fit together. Aaron Gordon, the same thing. They've created a culture, thanks in large, large part led by Jokic, that guys are willing to sacrifice to make other guys better. That is hard to find, especially when it comes to your star core. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All that said, though, I, I can't help but feel that the Eastern Conference is better than what they were represented by this year. Milwaukee, Giannis getting hurt, and that team being a little more, a little older and frail than maybe we fully realized. Boston Celtics, it's still mind-boggling that they could not figure out a way to beat Miami zone with all of the talent that they have. I'm not taking away what the Miami Heat did and how they got there, but I dare say that the Milwaukee Bucks and the Boston Celtics would have presented more problems for the Denver Nuggets than the Miami Heat did. The game is a matter of matchups, and Miami had the right matchups to knock off Boston and Milwaukee and New York, obviously, but not the matchups to have a chance against the Denver Nuggets. And yes, even the Philadelphia 76ers with Joel Embiid would have presented more problems. Being a bigger team, the size of Denver would not have had the same impact on a series with the Philadelphia 76ers that it did with the Miami Heat. But putting all that aside, if Bradley Beal and Damian Lillard wind up with some of the top two teams uh, or top three teams in the Eastern Conference, then I might have to slow my roll on just how dominant the Denver Nuggets are going to be the next couple of years. Beal, for example as a replacement for Chris Middleton in Milwaukee would make them more formidable than ever, even if they're unable to keep Lopez. Adding him to Miami for Tyler Harrow and Duncan Robinson, which one of my sources suggested as possible trade pieces, would give them the heat, the one thing they desperately needed against the Nuggets, other than size, and that's somebody who can score having scored 95 points or less in four of the five games. Now, I'd rate Lillard a more valuable offensive weapon because of his ability to make plays as well as score. But Beal's size would make him better suited for the Heat's defensive approach. Boston is also interesting in that it would be, presumably, for Jalen Brown. I don't see a package built around Marcus Smart being enough. The challenge is going to be making the money work, seeing as Beal is due to make nearly $47 million next season. I've also heard 
a potential package around Malcolm Brogdon because of the size of his contract. Uh, it would still have to be more pieces than Brogdon to get that deal done. But again, as I noted, Beal can drive this a little bit, so Washington will have to make the best of what they get. They're certainly not going to hold Beal hostage, especially since I've heard that the contract that he negotiated with all of these bells and whistles benefiting the player uh, was negotiated directly with Leonsis. Now, what I find most interesting, and just a touch galling, is that Beal signed this max deal of $251 million with the Wizards just last summer. And we are just coming up to the one-year anniversary. And lo and behold, we get news that the Wizards and Beal are in agreement on working something out to get him someplace else. Now, he couldn't have got that $251 million from anybody else if he had decided to opt out and sign elsewhere. Likewise, Lillard signed that two-year extension. He couldn't get two years and $120 million from anybody other than the Blazers. If either one of them or both forced trades, it would essentially wreck the whole point of incentivizing players to stay with their teams by allowing them to sign for significantly more money than if they went into free agency. It's essentially sacrificing a year in order to get paid top dollar and then ring shop by forcing their way to one of the top teams. I can't fault Lillard for the reasons I stated earlier, but Beal's situation feels a little different. And then again, as I said, he negotiated the deal, which includes a no-trade clause and 15% trade kicker, which means that he gets another 15% bonus of his contract if he's moved. And I, I don't know if he has the wherewithal to be able to waive that or not. I know once upon a time players could. I don't know if that still exists. I, something in my brain is saying that that was changed in the latest CBA. In any case, Ted Leonsis, the owner, signed off on all of this, including moving him now. He... It means that Leonsis knew that he was going to give Beal that money and was okay with him bailing a year later because he is, apparently. Now, that is a very magnanimous gesture made for a player who accomplished a hell of a lot less for the Wizards than Lillard has for the Blazers. Lillard, I would say, has earned that kind of largesse. If that kind of largesse can be earned. Then again, as I said, it's Leonsis' money and his team, and he certainly has the right to spend and run it the way that he sees fit. I'm just not sure I'd do it the same way. Uh, before I go, I do want to address Nikola Jokic's remarkable indifference to being an NBA champion and a star. For those not aware... He was visibly distressed when he found out that he might have to stay in Denver a few extra days to attend a championship parade. He is clearly, and has made it known, he's eager to return to Serbia, to his small town of Sambor, and be on hand to see one of his horse, horses race there. Like, he, he wants to go home. Now, I don't know what kind of horse it is or what kind of race, but we're not talking about the Kentucky, Kentucky Derby. This isn't... This is less about 
It's got to oversee this horse and it's racing as much as he wants to be home and surrounded by family. And he's also made it clear in various comments that playing basketball is something he likes to do, but that he is not consumed by it. He gave me the impression, and I don't know that I had it before, but I certainly have it now, after winning this title and the way he reacted to it all, that if he went back to Sambor and never played in the NBA again, he would be perfectly content. Now, I don't expect him to do that by any stretch, but I'm also fairly certain that he doesn't share Coach Mike Malone's immediate focus on winning several more championships. And this is not this does not surprise me at all about Malone. Malone has always been a ramrod. He's always been a driver. In fact, I think what has benefited him is that he has mellowed somewhat. He's backed off. Uh, he's found a way to be a little more understanding. But the fact that he came out right away after they won the championship and said, we're not just going for one more, we're going for multiples. We're, we're building a dynasty. That is, that is right in keeping with Mike Malone's personality and approach since I've known him, which goes back to his days as an assistant coach in Cleveland. Uh, in any case, and which also makes it interesting that he and Jokic their personalities mesh as well as they do. Very interesting. And it should make for an interesting dynamic when next season rolls around. I will be very interested to see what kind of shape that Jokic is in when he comes back next season. Because he came back dedicated to being in better shape. And he was a far more effective player as a result. And one more thought on that, by the way. I mentioned that at one point in the series, the Heat made a concerted effort to attack Jokic and pick and rolls as much as possible. And that it was one of the reasons they were able to steal a game. And they were, I think it was game three, they actually didn't win. But, um, but they attacked Jokic and, and to great, great success. Ultimately didn't win the game, but it was effective. I got some pushback from... I don't know if there were viewers or listeners who suggested that Jokic's defense wasn't the reason they lost and that he's such a better defense, that it's an old song about him being uh, a defensive liability. You have to take it into context. I do think that Jokic is better defensively than he's ever been. I think he tries more than he ever has. big part of that is just being in shape and being able to move his feet. But... Who are you going to attack on that team? You're going to attack the two. You're going to attack Jokic and Jamal Murray. That's without question. Murray has stepped up amazingly as a defensive player. Now, that's one guy. You can question his defense, and I've had people do that. He was guarding Jimmy Butler and giving, giving Jimmy all he could handle. Like, that wasn't a day off. That wasn't an easy bucket for Jimmy. On the other hand... And if you question this, don't look at stats. Don't give me analytics. Watch the game. I, I don't know what the people who pushed back on the Heat attacking Jokic in pick and rolls were watching because they even did it in a very unique way. They, they did it using Jimmy Butler and Bam 
to play pick and roll against Aaron Gordon and Jokic. And they knew that whoever Jokic ended up guarding, if they switched, then they'd simply have whoever Jokic was guarding look for that mid-range shot. Because Jokic was not going to play them tight. He's worried about players going by him, even once they get to the paint. And those two combined for 50 points in Game 3 on mid-range shots. It wasn't enough to win a second game, but it was clearly effective. And that was my only point. I don't understand why when we have great players, and I've been through this with plenty of other players, when you appreciate what they do great, but you acknowledge that they're not perfect, that there are areas that they could still improve on, that people think that you're downgrading them rather than just giving an accurate, accurate view of who they are so that when they do improve in those areas, they get, the, they get the requisite credit. They get the credit for having still improved and, and gotten better, as Jamal Murray is an example of. And I would say that Jokic has as well from the regular season and previous seasons, certainly. And I get the sense yet that, that, that there's people out there that are like, no, that, that whole thing is just a trope. It was, it was never the case that Jokic was as bad as defensively he was made out to be. Yes, he's bad. He can be bad at times. He doesn't contest shots when they're right there with smaller players. And he's not in foul trouble. He just does less of it. Denver, by the way, won that game three because Christian Brown provided an unexpected burst of 15 points. And Jamal Murray matched Jokic's offensive mastery, both of them collecting triple-doubles. That's how they won the game. It wasn't because of Jokic's defense. Just want to make that clear. I went on a little bit of a rant there. It happens. None of this is to suggest I don't admire everything about Jokic, including his attitude about the game being something he does, not who he is. He's being his true self. And I could never be mad at or upset with someone who chooses to be that. It's a healthy perspective to have. It's rare, uh, but it's a healthy approach. And I imagine it will serve both him and the Nuggets well. I'd even say it already has. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United Recast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. In the next episode, I'm thinking of addressing something that maybe we're aware of on a subliminal level, but we really haven't addressed it. And that's the fact that the star core that led the current NBA champions to a title are a Canadian and a Serbian. And the number one pick is going to be another foreign player, Victor Wembanyama. And if you look around and we look at who's competing for MVPs and how teams are being built, the next iteration of great teams, a lot of foreign players in that mix, a lot of non-American players. What does it say about our game? Should there be any concern whatsoever that not only the rest of the world is caught up, 
but they're making moves and producing players that are beginning to dominate the NBA. It's something to at least explore and talk about. And who among American players or how American basketball can turn the tide, if there is indeed a tide that needs to be turned. We will perhaps get into that in the next episode if a better subject does not arise. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.